the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way it treats its animals. This quote by Mahatma Gandhi is our framework for today's episode. We are looking at a documentary that is telling the story of our relationship to the largest land mammal on earth, the elephant. An apology to elephants, restoring honor to nature's gentlest giants, is our topic here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. Helga, I'm so happy you brought back that Gandhi quote. I know you you referenced it once before about about three years ago when we did an interview with the non-human animal rights project. It was almost three years to the day. It was it was end of May when we did that. That episode with Stephen Wise, who's the founder of that nonprofit. And you know, one thing I love so much about doing an organic conversation is that we have a really wide spectrum of topics that we cover and we're pretty conscious about varying those topics so we can give the entire spectrum of, as you said, everything that makes life worth living. I love when we do animal focused episodes because I feel like this is something that historically has not occupied a lot of time in our popular culture or our news cycles. And I know when people turn their attention to the ethical treatment of animals, behavior starts changing. We did a, an interview with the people who were part of Blackfish, the, not the director, but some of the people who started in the film and helped make the film the success that it was. And that had such a huge, huge impact. That, that documentary had such a huge impact on the community collective consciousness around the treatment of these really, really incredible creatures and how different their behavior has been in captivity versus the wild. And over however many years it's been since, you know, people started putting their attention on the treatment of, of orcas or, or killer whales, SeaWorld is changing their policies now. That is the the activity that has been generated by people increasing their awareness around the treatment of animals. And when we do these kinds of episodes, you know, we connect with animals when we're very young and develop this bond with them that if we don't revisit it frequently, we can become a bit apathetic or just a little bit checked out on the role we can play on making sure that all beings who live on this planet can enjoy the same kind of freedom and, and sensitivity. And, you know, they've been here longer than we have. So <laughs> yeah, we, I'm really looking forward to today's interview. We have the Non-Human Rights Project and also the Rights of Nature, Bolivia, that has changed its constitution. And I think it, it does point to a shift in overall society around the globe of reintegrating nature. You know, we have become addicted to our devices and technology. And while that is very helpful and may serve us too, in the same way, we have to look at uh, what are we surrendering when we are, you know, electronically hooked up nonstop 24-7. So, you know, we're learning, I think, an, a new way of dealing with technology and our engagement with it and how far we've gone into that and maybe lost track of nature and the humanness of, of the experience. And really for the last decade at the same time, I've seen more nature awareness documentaries and works and blogs and articles and books um, than ever before. So 
it's wonderful to be able to create that balance and and remind people and that is our focus in this hour an apology to elephants restoring honor to nature's gentlest giants our topic here on an organic conversation i'm helga helberg and i'm sitarani palomar and we'll have the filmmaker with us today the director actually of that documentary and also the president and co-founder of pause that's the performing animal welfare society all that and more in just a minute stay tuned are you a chef have a catering business or planning a party or simply just love organic produce if you're in the san francisco bay area walk right in to earl's organic produce anyone can buy directly from us at wholesale prices You don't have to be a natural food store to enjoy the freshest and most delicious organic produce. We are located on the San Francisco Produce Market at 2101 Gerald Avenue. We look forward to seeing you. Walk-in hours are Monday through Friday throughout the night from 10 p.m. to 10 a.m. Minimum purchase is one box or flat, cash or checks only. For more information, visit earlsorganic.com. Fry Vineyards is America's first organic winery, family-owned and operated since 1980. Dedicated to the highest levels of organic and biodynamic farming, Fry never adds synthetic sulfites or other preservatives to their wines. Fry organic and biodynamic wines include delicious Cabernet Sauvignon, Zinfandel, Syrah, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Fry Vineyards Mendocino County award-winning wines without added sulfites. Available at grocery stores and online at frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. An apology to elephants, restoring honor to nature's gentlest giants is our topic here in this hour of an organic conversation. And with us is the director of the documentary, Amy Schatz. Uh, she's joining us today from New York City. And we also have Ed Stewart, who is in the movie. He's the president and co-founder of PAWS, Performing Animal Welfare Society. He's joining us from Galt, California today. Uh, do we have both of you, Amy and Ed? Yes. Yes, you do. <laughs> Thanks so much for making the time and being available for for this really important interview. We were just saying in our intro that as we, as society, become more connected and hooked on our electronic devices, there's an aspect of nature that we can't emphasize enough that is part of the human experience and maybe the source or the, the, the foundation of the human experiences. I quoted Gandhi saying that the greatness of a nation and its moral progress can be judged by the way it treats its animals. And an apology to elephants, for me, captures all that. It reminds me of movies like The Cove or other documentaries that we have covered. But Amy, you have been really exceptionally successful in in showing the kind of emotional importance of looking at that relationship to nature or to animals, in this case, to elephants. Let's talk about the title. Um, where was that born out of? How did you and your or your f fellow filmmakers came up with the title An Apology to Elephants? Well, titles on documentaries are always tricky. Sometimes they come right away, and sometimes they come at the very end. And in this case, you know, it, it really was the culmination of our journey in making the film. We started on um, this exploration because of Lily Tomlin's passion for elephants. Lily Tomlin came to us, and we collaborated with her. And with Lily as narrator, we 
um, wanted to explore the beauty and the intelligence of elephants, try to understand what's remarkable about them, and also to expose how they've been mistreated and exploited over time. So the film is both a love letter to elephants, it's really an ex- you know, a real a tribute to them and, and mm. what it is that's magnificent about them, but also an acknowledgement and an apology, really, for how we've wronged them. Um, human beings have captured them and abused them and even killed them over time um, in a disgraceful way. So it's both, we love you and we're sorry. Can you tell us about the emotional lives of elephants and what do you think people would be surprised to learn about these animals? I could speak to the surprise, and I think Ed can speak to, he spends so much time in the company of elephants, so he can, he knows them intimately. But what surprised me in, is how feelingful they are and how they care for their young and how they can remember elephants they haven't seen for many, many years and how they grieve, grieve for their dead. I mean, all of that really was, was so surprising to me, how social they are and how loving and affectionate they are toward each other. But, you know, Ed lives with them, so maybe this is a good question for you, Ed. Well, the uh, the difference between a, a wild elephant and a and an elephant that has been subjected to captive, captivity, even in a nice situation, is pretty drastic uh, a difference. I mean, a wild elephant is where, you know, they should be wild. They should have the texture of a wildlife they live in family units, family groups. They're with their mothers, um, you know, for long periods of time, and a female with for their whole life. They live with their great grandmothers, their grandmothers. They move as as a unit, um, as dictated by a, a matriarch, who's in charge and has the the knowledge. <clears throat> so it, it's a beautiful situation in the wild, in captivity, and I think apology an apology to elephants showed this dramatically is a stark contrast to what what they really should have and um, you can do what you can for them even in a sanctuary but you'll never meet never truly meet their needs because uh, they just have so much in the wild and it's a shame uh, to see elephants uh, in 2016 going through the strife that they're going through in captivity and even in the wild now in some places Let's talk about that. What do you still see? I, I remember, you know, being four or five years old, going to a circus in Hamburg, Germany, where I grew up. And I found it fascinating, of course, as a little boy. And I recognized that it was odd at the same time already at that age. Not that I would think it was wrong because everyone else was clapping. And so it, it must have been right. But there was something artificial about it. Can you talk about actually both of you um what has been the history of man's bond with elephants and and how has that evolved and where are we today both in good terms as well as work that is still uh needs to be addressed amy do you want to go first um i'll I'll start Uh, so well the film covers not only how elephants have been hunted for ivory and meat and you know the kind of long history of them um working for humans um, but how they've been brutally captured and often babies taken from their mothers um, and and transported um, for work in circuses and zoos. And it's a heartbreaking story, that, that kind of rupture and that taking young elephants away from their mothers. Um, when I started working on this film, um, like you, I had had experience with zoos and circus and elephants in 
Susan circus when I, circuses when I was young, and I didn't really understand how they got to be so cooperative and how they became so skilled at dancing and jumping and giving rides. And I didn't really think about it, even though it was something disconcerting about it. it I didn't really understand how an elephant is trained. And working on this film, I came to understand how that's done, and it, it really shocked and sickened me, and, and Ed was very helpful in kind of explaining that process and um, the fear and the trauma that performing elephants endure is so unimaginable. So that piece of it, I mean, Ed, do you you see the elephants that are retired and are trying to kind of live out a peaceful life after having lived through that trauma? Is our elephants still being being trained and being used in circuses and zoos because you, you can speak to whether or not things are changing. Well, <clears throat> I think any any uh, captive elephant has a huge adjustment to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, th- and that's one of, the, one of the traits of elephants that I think is a flaw. They tolerate so much uh, without uh, acting out and, and uh, attacking even human beings. They're too forgiving and it, their their life is is a mess in captivity. They you know these babies that have been taken for years and years and years. The forty and fifty year old elephants now in captivity in zoos and theme parks and and wind up in sanctuaries were all taken from their families. Uh, that is traumatic right there. Uh, the bond between the mother and the baby. They would run the elephants into a corral then pick out the young females mostly that are that were about four years old that were weaned mostly weaned at that time and not dependent on their mother and they would just stand up on top and point and choose the elephants that they want and those would be shipped off to zoos around the world and circuses and we didn't know that you know we thought that elephants were happy and they had a great life, and they loved being in the zoo or the circus because that was the impression that uh, the people gave. And like you said, everybody clapped. And I think kids know there initially there's something wrong, but they don't know what it is. And eventually, their parents uh, and other people, their their peers, and the pressure of society just sort of makes it, makes it okay. okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. still a practice that, that you're seeing today? I mean, are, aren't are uh, elephants at this point uh, protected, just like I would think tigers and lions? And uh, isn't isn't there like an well, export it, ban? You know, on it's, they're protected in uh, one, one sense, but there were elephants just shipped over from Africa to zoos in the United States. 17 elephants just came over to three zoos in, in the United States. Um, How's that still legal? They, like under what umbrella? It's legal. No, yeah, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service okayed the deal and said that it was gave them a permit to import. There are also elephants uh, that are going to China from Zimbabwe, and it, you know these animals are have some value, and they are being shipped out uh, as a commodity, and it's it's a. It's an emergency right now. <clears throat> I mean, we have to save habitat and give the elephants, finally, after thousands and thousands of years, we have to start giving them the respect that uh, not only poaching, but the governments 
selling off their resources. Treasures. They just looked at sure. them like a resource. And and to wind up in a Chinese zoo is probably not something that a baby elephant born on the ground in Africa would ever imagine would happen to it. It turns, at best, a life in captivity is a life of deprivation for an elephant, but uh, it's it's getting. I think it's getting even worse. Sure. I think the dis- disrespect is is abundant right now. You're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg, and I'm Sitarani Palomar. And our topic is an apology to elephants, restoring honor to nature's gentlest giants. A documentary that is now available on HBO and. Uh, with us is the director of An Apology to Elephants, Amy Schatz, as well as Ed Stewart, the president and co-founder of PAWS, Performing Animal Welfare Society. That's pawsweb.org. Sita. I think I heard both you, um, Amy and Ed, use the word trauma. And I think that that's such a poignant word in this situation because we're talking about a, a, a species that is incredibly intelligent uh, and emotionally intelligent. I mean, they have very sophisticated community and family bonds. And for us to imagine these these young being ripped away from their families so early on, and in some cases, watching, watching family members being killed right in front of them so that they could be taken away to the US or to China or somewhere where they're going to become performing animals is, is heartbreaking. So frequently, and and there's more awareness now, thankfully, but, you know, many adults that I know cite these early experiences at circuses and zoos as the times that they fell in love with animals, whether it was um, orcas in the case of SeaWorld or tigers that they saw at the zoo or elephants that they saw at the circus. And so I'm, I'm wondering what your what your reflection is about the role of entertainment in education and and more importantly at this point given what we've been able to shed light on with documentaries like yours what alternatives exist well as a parent i guess i'm thinking do i want my children just to be able to see elephants in person and how important is that i'm not sure this is the question that you're asking but I think for in terms of education and understanding elephants, if you take the case of dinosaurs, for instance, children never get to see dinosaurs in in the flesh. And they know a, a lot about dinosaurs. Kids are fascinated by them and can recite, you know, all the different kinds of dinosaurs that, that, that are there. And I, I guess I would make the case for leaving elephants um, to do their thing in the wild, and that that families and children don't actually need to have um, real species and zoos to um, learn about them. That's what came to my that's mind. That's a that's a perfect response, Amy. It really is. And and, <laughs> and we've done. I, I mentioned in the intro we as frequently as as we're able to, and especially when when great films like this come out, we get to talk about this topic. And we've asked this question before. And very frequently, the response that we get starts from that place. As a parent, how do I want my kids to experience these animals? And I just think that that's a really beautiful perspective. Is thinking about how we pass on this legacy of being stewards of of the earth and of the creatures of the earth. And um, I very much appreciate what you had to say about it and agree. I think that the analogy with dinosaurs is a brilliant one. 
And you're making a good point, Amy. There is this grotesque display of elephants with red capes and you know, in, in, in circuses doing tricks that they would never do in nature. And then there's this other part of is there value for children to see them perhaps in a zoo or in a wildlife refuge somewhere in California where it's warm enough to mimic their climate. And you're saying basically we don't need to have access to everything Uh, you know, all the time, just because we are, quote unquote, a wealthy country, wouldn't it be nice that maybe some people get to go to Africa and see them in the wild, but we know they are there and that's where they belong, that almost like food, do we need to have every cuisine available where we live? Or how important is it to maintain our, our local identity enough to honor what was what was so what what was given and placed for various reasons and hundreds of thousands of years in in the configuration of the world that's what i'm hearing you're saying is that is that correct well i guess what worries me is that we leave as much room in the world for wildlife for wild uh, animals wild flowers wild spaces for nature yes. to do its thing And I personally want my children and their children and their children to live in as rich a world as possible. And they don't need access to everything. They, you know, everything, if, if, if we can only live lighter on the earth, everything is connected, as we yes. know. And from the elephants to the food we eat and the air we breathe. And if we let nature do its thing, more of that richness would, would be preserved. And yes. I guess I think I, the way I viewed the film is that it wasn't only about elephants it was about um making a plea for leaving what's wild wild in the world uh -huh. to leave space for that right ed what's your what are your thoughts well you know there's the behavior that you see and and what you learn about uh, a wild animal in captivity is not really learning about a wild animal uh, their true nature I've just spent a few days with Cynthia Moss, who was also in the in the film, and is a researcher in Africa. and And we were reviewing some captive animal behavior mm -hmm. in a zoo, and she said, "None of this makes any sense. None of this is normal behavior." So I, I'm not sure. You know, it, it's a smoke and mirrors kind of education. I think if a, a child's first experience with an elephant is to see it standing on its head in a in a an arena in the middle of the ring with the cape on that's a that's a negative educate that's something that somebody at some point is going to have to overcome mm -hmm. and, and tell them that's not an elephant this is a this is an elephant i mean it you it doesn't make sense if you want to teach a child about human behavior you don't take them to prison you know You, if you want to teach them about human behavior, you take them to a park and you watch the families and you watch interaction between people that are free. Uh, you don't take them to a place where, where the animals are locked up and displaying anything but normal behaviors. And, and on top of that, there's no reintroduction plan. You know, all of the breeding of tigers and elephants and bears in captivity there are no elephants that are ever going to come from a zoo and go back or a circus and go back to the wild. It's not even in a plan. It's not even a concept. So, so it's, uh, you know, an elephant lives in an enclosure 24 hours a day, seven days a week for its entire life. Some, some are big enclosures, some are small, but whatever the reason we put, it better be a really good reason to put an elephant 
in a cage for its whole life. And, uh, and I don't think people realize that they're never going anywhere and their offspring is never going to go anywhere. And if we don't save the habitat, we're going to lose the elephants. The, the model is wrong. Yes, and we want to talk about that more and also what the Performing Animal Welfare Society, PAWS, your organization, is doing at least what, it's, what it can in, in the U.S. with animals that it receives with elephants. All that and more when we come back right after the break. Please stay tuned. We are speaking with Amy Schatz, the director of An Apology to Elephants, and also Ed Stewart, the president and co-founder of PAWS. That is pawsweb.org. Pawsweb.org, again, the Performing Animal Welfare Society. An apology to elephants, a wonderful documentary, um, very emotional, beautiful, and hard to watch, and so important, available on HBO. This is An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be right back with so much more. Stay tuned. Are you interested in making healthy food your profession? Bowman College is a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Their professional training programs prepare individuals for successful careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Study at one of four locations in California and Colorado or learn from home in a self-paced mentor distance learning program. Find out more about their classes on holistic nutrition and culinary arts at bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. Produce is ever-changing, seasons coming and going. At Earl's Organic, we have been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. Since 1988, Earl's Organic Produce has been establishing strong relationships with growers and developing a deep understanding of the seasons, so you can offer the most delicious organic produce to your customers, staff, and clients year-round. For organic produce, visit Earl's Organic Produce at earlsorganic.com. That's earlsorganic.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sidorani Palomar. And we're speaking with the director of An Apology to Elephants, a critical documentary that is available on HBO, Amy Schatz, and also Ed Stewart, the president and co-founder of PAWS, Performing Animal Welfare Society. That website, again, is pawsweb.org, pawsweb.org who are joining us from New York City and Galt, California, respectively. We talked about the role of education before the break. We talked about how things have changed. Um, I, I want to hear more, Ed, about what, what do, where do paws come in? What do you do uh, when, you, when you take on animals? Will they ever get shipped back to Africa in any case through you, or have you ever seen that? Or what is the kind of what's the life cycle and where, where does paw come in? A pause um, to to help out. Well, I, I certainly wish we could uh, return anything, any of the animals that we take uh, to the wild, but um, that has will never happen. Um, if you see a, an animal, a tiger, a lion, a gorilla, any any animal like that in a in an enclosure in a zoo, circus, sanctuary, they're going to live there for the rest of their life, and their offspring will mm -hmm. will do the same. So there, there is no, you know, we're the end of the line for these for these animals, and and sometimes it's just unbelievably bad. With some of the elephant, I mean, it's w one of the one of the elephants in the in an apology to elephants was named Annie, and she was from a zoo, and and she was treated with such disrespect, and 
abused, obviously. Um, and some of it's hard to watch, but it's it's really important. And I was so happy that somebody finally showed Annie's life. Uh, she was captured in the wild. She came in a totally broken, scared, uh, very afraid of, of human beings, lashing out, trying to kill everybody. And I didn't blame her. I mean, what we really like in in our staff here is not love for the animals, but empathy. You know, uh, anybody can love a dog and love a cat and love an animal. It's kind of cheap uh, to say that. I want somebody to work hard and, and do the best for for Annie, and she lived to be 57 years old, but we restored some dignity to her, and, and that's really all we can do. She had a lake, she had trees, she had grass, she had spacious areas, she had friends, and um, really it's you're pretty limited on what you can do as far as rehabilitating an animal like that. Ed, could you mention the story that the story of Annie and, and Tammy, her friend, and mm-hmm. how that relationship one of the wonderful things that I found in coming to visit you there is that there are friendships that the elephants develop and and how poignant those friendships are and, and important to their daily lives. Well, they, you know, sometimes they cling to each other. You know, they, they come from the same, you know, they were both captured in Asia, uh, both taken from their mothers, and both put into it just to be put into a zoo for display. And, you know, when when one would be uh, being abused and trained and, and just shackled and brought down to the ground and hit, uh, the other one would try to intervene and, and stop the behavior of the humans. And, uh, I mean, I, I saw so much video of, of these trainers doing that to Tammy and Annie you think when you get them, if we could ever get them out of there and give them some freedom, it would be, you know, liberating for all of us, not just those two, but all of the people that have ever seen that. And and uh, <clears throat> so it's it's almost like they're in, a, you know, some kind of a, a jail, and they don't know what's going to happen to them next. And and so they bond. Sometimes they bond tightly, and sometimes they they don't. But Tammy and Annie. They did, and it was. Uh, they both lived to be a ripe old age, and and they were both sweet elephants. So when we when we, in this case, talk about elephants, every animal kind of carries a, a message for us or some kind of wisdom. And for elephants, it is actually the the notion of wisdom, right? They are. It's the largest land mammal, and they live very old lives, long lives. Uh, what can we as a society learn from the way elephants live their lives? What have you observed, um, Amy, by making this film? Like, how has that how has that changed mm-hmm. you? What 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 are the messages well, and lessons you've you've seen? That's a great question. I guess for me, um, the respect for the matriarch is something that I thought is really interesting and is something that might be a nice thing to carry over into our lives. You know, the oldest female is the one that fellow elephants go to for decision-making, and the wisdom and the memory of the matriarch is so important to the well-being of the whole group. Maybe Ed can speak to that a little bit more, but I found that to be very novel and very 
just touching that that the wisdom and the the older that the elephant is, the more valuable she is to the to the group of, of and the well-being of the group. Um, that doesn't happen in our society. Yeah, female or male, right? Um, matriarch right. or patriarch, but seniors are kind of discarded. At this point, as we have very little relationship to our seniors, and that's actually the most wisdom we could possibly gain, right? That's our that's our wisdom pool in a way. That's the oldest knowledge uh, we could access as a society, and we don't do that. And um, species, other species, do that. Specifically, elephants. Uh, Ed, do you what 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 is for you the the greatest lesson working with elephants? Well, there are so many lessons. I mean, every day they teach you. <laughs> something um i haven't been able to study wild elephants as much uh as as i would have liked to i see mostly captive elephants and we do mostly reclamation on them but i think i think uh, what amy said the the matriarch leading an organized group a mm -hmm. social group it's like a traveling family reunion and they they understand their place and it's It's peaceful. They're large. They're vegan. You know, they they uh, coexist with other animals, and it's uh, it's just an incredibly wonderful life in the wild. And uh, and I think that's I was talking to Cynthia Moss again about that. About I said our elephants in our group of African elephants don't have a matriarch. Nobody wants to be a matriarch. And there's no reason to be a ma you know. There's no uh, wisdom pool that uh, any one of them has as far as survival in captivity. They mm -hmm. don't really need it. Sure. And it's it's an important thing, really very important thing, and that's just one more thing they don't they don't have in, in a captive situation. And the thing, you know, the 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 industry that displays and exhibits and and exploits elephants uh, wants to make people think that the wild is gone. So they're going to rescue these poor elephants that need to be rescued from Africa and sure. Asia. And, you know, I think they're giving up too early. There are wild places right now that need to be saved, and we have to do it immediately. And there are economic issues. Elephants, will they know how to breed. They know how to survive if you give them their space. And we have to step back from captivity, quit spending $50 million dollars on obsolete zoo enclosures and focus on the habitat uh, and and make sure we save some for the elephants. Yes, beautiful. Sita? Well, I think that's a really great transition because there's a, a, a bit of information in the film that talks about the, the role elephants play in our ecology. And Can you guys talk about the threat that we face as a result of our treatment of elephants over hundreds of years? Like, what is happening to our ecosystem? Well, in the film, we have um, some wonderful interviews with scientists and, and people who study elephants and, and work with them. One of the, I think it actually is Cynthia Moss who talks about the elephants as gardeners of the forest mm -hmm. and that one of their functions is to keep the forest healthy for other species that rely on them. And um, it's this, their function in that environment, which which makes them very important to not only their own, you know, their own particular story, but the story of other species that rely on 
the work they do. Yeah, you usually, you know, I just want to chime in there, you usually <laughs> hear stories of overgrazing, right, whatever animal it might be. But, and of course, I'm sure that exists if, if the herd density is to, or the animal density is too great for a specific plot of land. Of course, there are negative ecological impacts. What the movie really shows is a story that you never hear, which is that without the elephants, um, many ecological areas in Africa or Asia would be more or less devastated. There, are, uh, there, There's one number I remember from the documentary saying that elephants are responsible for the survival of over 30 tree species because they carry their seeds through the, you know, th through the land. And those trees wouldn't exist if it wasn't for, for elephants. And that's just one one example where elephants seem to be critical for the ecological balance of that particular land. Well, that is the, that's their main function is seed dispersal and clearing pathways for other animals. If you go to Asia or, or Africa, you can see where the elephant highways are. They they clear wide uh, areas going through dense brush sometimes, and other animals use that. Elephants also can dig for water. They, when there's no water on the surface, they know the matriarch will know where the water is, how to get it, and they can actually dig a hole and let a lot of different species survive. So they are incredibly wonderful and um, unique. Um, you know, we talk about, we talk about, uh, you know, like Amy was talking about dinosaurs before, and kids can probably tell you more about a dinosaur than a than an elephant, but but we have the most incredible beings that have ever walked the face of the earth, elephants right now. Incredible trunk, incredible hearing and, and family, and we have them right now, and we're letting them go. Yeah, you know, captivity has, has not worked. The numbers have dropped off the table while the zoos and circuses and theme parks have been, quote, educating the public. Mm -hmm. It's not working. So we have to quit putting animals in cages and calling it education and actually attacking the problem, which is mostly economic problems in the country of origin. So I want to I want to wrap with that uh, as the last notion. I, I could honestly talk about this wonderful and critical and brutally honest documentary for another two hours. Um, Amy, you, you did such a great job as a director. We, we watch a lot of documentaries and talk about it on the air here on An Organic Conversation. And yeah, the job you have done of balancing what must be told and the without being flashy, just really going to the emotional part of how wrong this is, you were able to completely capture in a, in a very hard and very beautiful way at the same time. Um, important. So with, with that, yes, uh, what, what steps can people take around the world or here in the U.S.? Um, we're listened to in 130 countries. If, if, what are you trying to do with the documentary other than apologizing to elephants, of course? But what would some of the steps be that you would want people to be encouraged to take? Well, um, some of the, the ending of the film really focuses on the activists who are out Yes. demonstrating and making their voices be heard. And the conclusion of the film really is about realizing what we have. As Ed mentions, we have this magnificent, incredible elephant on this earth, recognizing that we have it, it deserves to live, and it deserves to be 
on this earth, um, and supporting organizations that ensure that elephants in the wild have the space they need and are yes. are protected. The other takeaway really is to research your zoo, um, see how the elephants are treated, avoid circuses that have performing animals, um, and to make your voice be heard if you if you care about these issues, to to get out there and, and make change and to not be complacent. Ed, do you want to add to that? Well, I, th- I think uh, Amy pretty much hit it on the head. It, it's all respect. You know, we we have obviously plenty of human beings on Earth. We use most of the uh, resources, and we're taking away from almost every other species. If You know, if elephants lived in California, they'd be gone a long time ago. So we have to understand what the African people and the Asian people go through with just tolerating elephants uh, nearby and making sure that everybody uh, has their own space. I think we have to stop with captivity. It hasn't worked. Back up and take a look at, at the habitat and make sure if we decide that they're valuable enough to save, uh, we have to start right now. If we decide they're not valuable enough to save, then we can continue the way we're going. And that is an apology to elephants, restoring honor to nature's gentlest giants. Here in an organic conversation, our focus in this hour, and that is Amy Schatz, the director of An Apology to Elephants, available on HBO, uh, and Ed Stewart, the president and co-founder of PAWS, the Performing Animal Welfare Society. Thank you so much for making the time and for all your work to to bring this important message and this documentary out and, and all the work you're doing, Ed, to give dignity for however many years can be brought to animals that have spent most of their lives in, in captivity in one way or another, doing tricks for us or just being on display in more or less grotesque ways, but definitely out of their natural habitat and family union. Thank you both for Thank you. dedicating Thank you. your lives Thank to you. it. Wonderful to have you. Thank you. Thank you. And this is An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sita Rani Palomar. Switching gears now to talk about our relationship to nature as it pertains to our plates. Of course, the update from the produce dock and what is happening in nature as in what is happening on the farm. Here is Earl Herrick and what's in season. And that is the voice of the San Francisco produce market, Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic, now with us. Earl, are you there? Hello, Helga. <laughs> hey. I'm here. <laughs> wow. So we're looking, we're looking at June, and uh, yeah. we're out of the May funk, where berries were wonderful, but it's kind of, that's a very interesting, you know, transition month of produce from far away, local produce is not quite in yet, but it's starting to, but June, that's a sigh of relief, right? Oh, yeah, it, it is exploding here. <laughs> uh, it's, so, it's so fantastic, especially for uh, new employees in the warehouse. Sure. Because uh, every day there's another <laughs> another item. and um, Really? Every day? Every other day? Every, every, every day. For example, just uh, 
a couple uh, last week we had some figs, the first arrival of figs from from the desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, their season's really in August, but the first one's from the desert. Sure. Uh, white nectarines and white peaches, yellow nectarines, yellow peaches. We had some pluots, and and that's just on the veg side, sure. uh, fruit side, fruit side on the yeah. veg. <laughs> it, it's, and, and what is so cool is that it's all so local now. It's it's all around us. The, we had some great rain, a couple of nice little rains at the end of May. Soft, you're right. My, my peach growers were loving it, saying, well, I don't have to get the sprinklers on yet. Right. And, you know, anytime they can save water, even though there has been some relief this year, um, many of the reservoirs are up to 100%, that's only one year. And, you know, there's, there's lots to go forward with. But we are looking for a very, very stable uh, stone fruit season. The last couple of years with the drought, with the high temperatures, there was a real challenge for the trees, not getting enough rain, obviously, and not getting enough sleep with the, with the chill hours. Sure. So the fruit got pretty small. It's, it's sizing up a little, and it, and it really starts with cherries in, mm. in May, and then the apricots, and then the apricots will continue, and then the, all the different varieties of peaches, nectarines, plums. Mm-hmm. Um, they just cascade in a mile a minute. I, I know I've run across endless amount of people that don't like some stone fruit think nectarines and peaches and what i've been able to derive from that is they've never had a good one they've never had the opportunity either to know how to ripen it or we've come from a history the last well for a long time since world war ii where the development of peaches and nectarines have been for for shipping so they developed the hybridized these these pieces of fruit that or firm and can ship halfway around or across the country, but they don't have any flavor. And so in the last 10, 20 years, there's been a lot of attention on returning to developing and also understanding when to harvest that ripe peach. Uh-huh. But it's not really ripe. They, they call it tree ripen. It's called tree ripen. And what that means is that it's been on the tree long enough. It's mature enough that there, that there are sugars and it will, as it continues to ripen, have that full juicy flavor that you want. Yeah, so the, the biggest issues I always see is it's either super firm, has no sweetness, or it's mealy. Yes. How can you yeah, ripen it or pick it that that won't happen? Oh, yeah, and do, um, that didn't mean picking from the tree. I mean, how can you choose that as a consumer? Well, sometimes it's just an ex- it's, it's experience you get over time where there's a feel for it. First of all, it should be firm, but not rock-hard firm. So you want to turn it around to its stem side, where the stem is sticking out just a little bit. And if it's really green in that stem, it's probably not going to ripen. Mm-hmm. It's okay if it has kind of a light green. Cool. Uh, also, in the ba- as you turn it around on the other side, the background color of the peach should not be green. It should be more uh, yellow to gold to red. So that's how you do it. In other words, the color has got to be at a certain point. Now, when you take it home, I wouldn't. I, I don't refrigerate my stone fruit unless I buy so much. But I, I like to buy it more frequently and and eat it more frequently. So I'll buy like three or four pieces that I'm going to eat in the next couple of days. So I leave it out on the counter on a uh, a, a natural fiber cloth. So it has a nice air barrier between where whatever it's sitting mm-hmm. on, and let the let the the natural air flow through it, so it it doesn't rot at uh, at that point of of touching. It prevents and mold mold growth, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, you just you check it out every day, and now a peach and a nectarine will get very aromic. You can you can smell it. So you just and it'll also get a little bit dull. Now that I don't mean super dull. Again, these are all shades of gray. Just a little bit of dull. That means it's starting to ripen. And then you cut it in half and check it out. Now don't wait too long. So part of it's the learning process. You cut that when you go ah. Yeah, Oh, not quite where I want it. So you wait another day for that next peach until you finally get a sense of what it is, not unlike avocados in their own way, when is that right? There's a certain feel to it. There's a certain aroma. And if you continue to do it, you will get to the point of, of, of knowing. And you have to, you're saying you have to do it, right? It's unlikely to find a perfectly ripe piece of stone fruit or peach in the store even though we say you know try your produce before you buy it and i'm sure somebody can cut a slice of a peach for you to to try in the store it's okay if that's not quite there yet as long as it's not all green it will ripen really nicely at home yeah the only time you're going to find i I think the best opportunity to find something at the point of purchase that's going to be ripe is going to be at a farmer's market Uh-huh. Many farmers sure. do that. They they bring some fruit that's ripe and ready because they they know yeah. that that's, that's what they want to do. But in a in a store that has big displays, sure. they just can't afford it. They won't hold up. Yeah, yeah. But what you can do is ask for a sample. It'll be firm, so it may not be that wonderful full full flavor yet. But if you get a sweetness, you know in a couple of days that will turn into a higher sugar piece of fruit. Yeah, cool. Oh, my God. Yeah. So helpful. <laughs> yeah, and, there's, and there's so many varieties right now. And, and there's also plums. And there's you know white and yellow nectarines, white and yellow peaches. And I think right now, you know, in, in, here we are in the first couple of weeks of June, you'll, you, the white peach is just starting to come out. There's some really nice varieties around that you can find. I would think look for something that's called an ivory princess. Another one's called a snow, br- uh, snow bright. Another one's a white lady. It's nice to get to know varieties, too. So ask your produce people uh, what variety it is. And if they just say it's a white peach, you say, well, it's got to be a variety. <laughs> sure. And you get to, know them, get to know them a little bit better. For example, one of my favorite yellow peaches, which is out around now, is called a flavor crest. And that's an older variety that not everybody carries it. But, you know, for... For those of the know, when when that sign sure. goes up in the store, <laughs> that's a guaranteed sale. Get to know your peach. Thank you for that update. Stone fruit. Check it out. Ripe it at home. Great tips. Now you know how to do it without having it go moldy and what to pick in the store. And um, yeah, amazing. Makes my mouth water. Thank you so much, oh, yeah. Earl. We'll have you back next week. Looking forward to it. <laughs> Me too. Take care. Yeah. Bye. And that's this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. I'm Helga Helberg. And I'm Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back with another episode next week. Looking forward to it. Bye. <laughs> Bye. An Organic Conversation is a proud production of the Organic Media Network. Associate producer, Kristen Ponger. This show would not be possible without the ongoing support from our listeners. Whether it's a dollar a month or a one-time donation, please consider becoming a patron of An Organic Conversation. For more information on how to support this program, please visit patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash An Organic Conversation. Thank you for your contribution. 
An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business since 1988. The website is earlsorganic.com. And also Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E.com. Thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to iTunes or anorganicconversation.com. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, please follow us on facebook.com forward slash anorganicconversation. We are your hosts, Helga Helber and Sitarani Palomar. And we'll be back right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Bye.